freemusic.com. Hello and welcome to the Hack Inc. podcast. Remember, hack is for life, not just for business. My name is Gareth Lyons and it's another episode of me flying solo. Kev became severely dehydrated, locked outside the Hack Inc. HQ and is now in the matter ICU on an IV drip. Should make a full recovery by the next episode and have learned a valuable lesson along the way. So, I won't dilly-dally because we have a super long episode, but it's really, really good. This week we're continuing in our chronicling of Irish animation industry history. In episode two, we talked about Murakami Wolf Swenson, and we're following through in our threat to do an episode about each of them. With a little internet sleuthing, I found a contact for the Swenson of Murakami Wolf Swenson, and he graciously gave up a ridiculous amount of his time for the interview. The episode runs a little longer, but when it came to cutting it, I couldn't bear to part with any of it. So a bit of background, although Charles, or Chuck had left as a partner of the company by the time that the studio set up in Ireland, he had a lot of relevant stories and tangential connections with the Irish animation industry. I was kind of blown away by the whole thing. Don't really care if it's too much talk in shop. Couldn't get rid of any of it, um, except for the part at the end where I talked about Brexit and came off as a complete idiot. Okay, so some things up front. Sound quality, a little dodgy. There was a moment where Chuck was leaning away from the mic and I was too nervous to correct him, but you can still hear him and he adjusted it somehow shortly after that. So it's only a small patch at the beginning. If you're wondering, Gareth, why do you sound like you're on sedatives and lacking your famous snappy debonair banter? Well, it's because I had headphones on to make sure we were recording right and I could hear my own voice on a two second delay the entire time. Um, I don't know how you people put up with this voice. Don't know how you do it. Anyways, it picks up speed about 10 minutes in. And to be honest, Chuck's so interesting, it's better I wasn't shouting on at all. So without any further delay, here's my talk with Charles, a.k.a. Chuck Swenson. Also, anytime you hear the name Jimmy, that's Jimmy Marikami. Okay, bye. So... Um, you are not the famous psychiatrist from Massachusetts who does no, no, no. Um, no and there's an hour long YouTube lecture by a guy talking about business and the advantages of the, such and such in the workplace yeah probably not me either no um, so uh, um, would you like to introduce yourself then I guess um, and say how you got into animation and the early days that led you to Murakami and Wolf Hmm, well, I'm I'm uh, Charles Swenson, Chuck Swenson, commonly known as, uh, and uh, I grew up here in L.A. And that when I was a little kid in, uh, well, maybe middle school, so I don't know, somewhere between 10 and 14, there were a series of films produced um, uh, by uh, some major company. Company, I don't know, GE maybe, um, that were sort of science-based, and they would um, show them at, at, uh, to kids in high school or in middle school. And uh, there was one that I remember about how your blood works and one that was about the sun and how it works and photosynthesis and all that stuff, and they were animated. Right. And, uh, and I... I was really taken with them. And I was a little kid, or I was in grammar school when UPA was at its peak. And, uh, you know, a couple of those uh, short films in the theater were really, I'd always liked uh, Looney Tunes and Mighty Mouse and, you know, all the traditional stuff that was being made at the time. But then these things came along and they, they really 
really had a, a different approach to what animation could be, and uh, that really struck my fancy. So I started following that. And, and when I saw these educational films, I said, that's what I want to do. And uh, mm. as a little kid in grammar school, I think I was in the third grade, and my teacher called my mom, you know, sent a note home with me to have her come to school, and I thought I was in trouble. But what she wanted to tell my mom was that I would I should go to art school, and uh, some years later I did that. Um, uh, my mom said from an early age, I didn't draw just the pictures of the cowboys and Indians. I would draw the the uh, setting, the hillsides, the the trees or forest or whatever, and then. The, and then the cowboys arriving, and then the Indians arriving, and then the battle. And so I was making storyboards when I was, you know, a, a toddler. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and just you know, one thing led to another. I I uh, went to art school, as I said. I went to a place here in L.A. Uh, the two of them. One was Art Center, but it was a bit fancy for my tastes and didn't have a film department. And the mm -hmm. second year, I transferred to Chouinard, which was, it's turned into CalArts. It's, uh, oh, somebody. right. I was just going to ask, was there any kind of um, studios, sorry, like uh, colleges for animation at that point? Or? Yeah, the, the, this was, uh, Chouinard was the only one that had any uh, substantial interest in animation because it was funded by Disney. It yeah. was backed by uh, by Walt Walt and Mrs. Chenard, uh sort of fell in league together. She taught uh, or offered classes in you know academic drawing to the nine old men and their cohorts back oh, wow. in you know the the twenties and thirties. I think the school started in twenty one or something like that. And so early on, right right at the beginning, when Walt wanted to make fancier films. Uh, with more a more realistic uh, bent, all these guys were talented and could do it, but they hadn't had the practice, so they went off to to art school to um, you know take some classes and you know yeah. brush up or whatever you call it. So anyway, th they were in league and he financed the thing, and so there was always a film department. And uh, when I was there, Teehee, which, which is a name that was pretty well known uh, here anyway, as a uh, as a designer, um, he he was a UPA guy. Uh, he brought in Bob Cannon, uh, and Bob was one of the founders of UPA. So I really, you know, I I realized a dream come true at school. And, and Bob Jimmy kind of, worked there as well, didn't he? Or Jimmy worked at UPA late in it, yeah. And so, and that was very attractive to me. I, I mm. uh, when I got out of school, or no, I wasn't out of school yet. Uh, Bob uh, Cannon, um, I he as part of our final year brought in uh, reels from all around the world of uh, studios, and uh, so we could see what was available and you know set our sights on something. And uh, the one that really caught my fancy was uh, uh, TV cartoons, TVC in London, and right. I said that's where I want to go. Uh, this is pre-Yellow Submarine and all, pre-you know their their sort of growing success. They were just making commercials and little short films, personal films. 
but but Jimmy had not only worked at UPA, but he'd worked at uh, uh, TBC as well. And so Bob introduced me to Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy set up a meeting with uh, George Dunning in, at the upcoming Annecy Film Festival. Um, right. with, as fate would have it, I didn't go to that uh, festival. I, uh, a friend of mine went instead, and he ended up working at uh, TVC. I was married, and was my wife was pregnant, and I thought it was impractical to you know pick everybody up and 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 take them to uh, to London on a yeah, of course. sort of a not a whim exactly, but not real nothing real solid to back it up. So anyway, I stayed here. Jimmy went to London. He came back, and he set up Murakami Wolf with Fred Wolf, his partner. Fred was a New York animator who'd moved out to L.A. and and uh, Jimmy was uh, uh, J- Jimmy had a very checkered career. Did a lot of Wolf, you know, a whole yeah, lot of Wolf. to say the <laughs> least. <laughs> yeah, and and was just an amazingly talented, uh, you know, creative. Uh, man, you know, some people called him a genius. I don't know about that, but he was really good at coming up with off-the-wall solutions to uh, whatever problem was put in front of him. Um, mm. Fred was a practical pig. He, he, you know, he knew how to get things done, and so they were a great team in in a lot of respects. Uh, Fred had worked uh, in New York animation and when he came out here he worked at Hanna-Barbera so in in their heyday so he knew how to you know get the footage out so to speak uh, yeah, but he was also probably... a creative guy uh, not not to you know downplay him uh, in favor of Jimmy they were just very different people um, and um, so Jimmy set me up at a little place here in town that did commercials called uh, Filmfare. Uh, he was leaving Filmfare to go to TVC to make, I think, The Good Friends. Uh, he had tried to get the owner of, of Filmfare to put up the money to make it, but this guy wouldn't do it, so he left and went to London and got the film made, and he sort of put me in his place as a animation designer director at this little... Uh, a commercial studio, and then he came back a year later and set up a company with Fred, and I just badgered them. You know, I was a yeah, yeah. kid out of school, and I would go by their office and hang out and make my make a nuisance of myself, and you know, uh, send art handmade, you know, drawings, and you know, just the sort of stuff that kids do when you <laughs> you have sure, no fear. Yeah. And no shame. And so, so finally they gave up, and, and uh, a couple of years had gone by, and now they were both on their way to uh, um, to an Annecy, uh, to a festival, and so they took me in and sort of ensconced me there to just hold down the fort while they were gone, and uh, right. and that you know that led to uh, you know an enduring partnership that went on for I don't know. I worked there with him as a partner and separately for 15 years or something like that. Good long time. Oh, wow. Um, I have it here that you were made a partner in 1971. If you say so. so. Okay. <laughs> I'm not 
I'm not good with dates, so... If, no, if neither am I. The, the last podcast we did was, like, just me losing my mind, pulling my hair out, trying to figure out how to get dates in order, so... Um, <laughs> so, what was it? Yeah, but I, I wanted to talk about the uh, your 1968-directed uh, short film, The Magic Pear Tree, nominated for an mm-hmm. Oscar... Yeah, and yeah. Uh, how old would you have been around that time then, if you were straight out of college when you were going to Murakami? I got out. I got out of college in '64, so okay. I'd be mid to you know late latest twenty twenty seven, maybe something like that. Oh wow, '68. Yeah, I was always I was born in '41, so I was a year behind the date. Okay. So if it was '67. I was twenty six. And what was the experience like working on that, and then subsequently getting nominated for an Oscar? Oh well, it was it was a great film to make. It was it was a lot of fun. Um, it was based on a Boccaccio little tale, so it was sort of body for its time. Um, mm. That sort of thing. It was a bit sexy. So and that sort of thing wasn't done in animation, at least not in this country at that time. Yeah. Um, so it was a, it was a real pleasure to make because you were sort of breaking some rules or boundaries or whatever. Uh, Jimmy Jimmy was the um, the guy sort of behind it. I think he came up with the idea, and I didn't know what he had in mind. But when we went to the recording ses- session, he just stepped away from the mic and said, "You take the key." In, in the the key to talk to the talent, and mm. uh, and that was how I was named the director. Oh really? Um, uh. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so you know, I, I had I had come up with the designs for it, and so it just seemed natural given the way Jimmy and Fred worked, because I put a, a substantial amount of work into it that I would finish it. So. You know, and I didn't realize that at the time, but that was the way they did things. That seems interesting. And, uh, I mean, like their backgrounds, like the well, the three of you that you know, there's kind of an independent route and a kind of more adult, mature streak, and then the kind uh-huh. of stuff that you would be using, you would be making to kind of fund projects like that would be. Uh, not to downplay it, but just to say, like, you know, well, the one that comes to mind later on, which you probably get to, uh, but I don't know your involvement, would be Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles um, mm-hmm. and things like that. You know, but just that there's such an independent streak and, you know, maybe yeah. not clearly defined designated roles and, you know, a kind of good sportsmanship, I guess. Uh, yeah. Everybody more or less supported everybody else. Everybody, we were all individual talents and didn't really step on each other's toes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we each brought what we had to the table, and and that's what we used. Uh, and and there was no, not, I, I suppose there was a little bit of uh, pushback. Jimmy was an interesting had an interesting history in that he's Japanese or mm. Nisei Japanese and spent time in the camps during the war. Yeah. He was a, a little older than I am, maybe five, seven years, something like that. Just just enough older so I was born at the beginning of the war. He was a kid when the war started. And so yeah. by the time the five years had gone by that the US was in the war, 
he was, you know, a, a pre-teenage kid. And, and that uh, experience really uh, scarred and, and, uh, and I won't say guided, but it, it had a lot of impact on the rest of his life. He never really found a place that he felt like he belonged. Uh, when he he worked at UPA, and uh, but when he got out of college, he he also went to Chenard, uh, you know, a bit before I did. But when he got out of art school, he went to New York, he went to London, and he went to Japan. And I think he spent a year or close to it in uh, in Tokyo as an animator, and. And then when he came back here, he and Fred got together, and he never felt quite at home in Los Angeles or, or the States, really, mm. because of that childhood experience. And I think that's part of the reason that he ended up in Dublin, because it, yeah. it, it sort of represented neutral territory. And, and, and of course, he fell in love and got married, too. So yeah. <laughs> that was a, 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 a motivator as well um and do you know how he met uh fred wolf oh man i probably do (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i don't know that i can remember you know it it was this was uh long enough ago that it was a pretty small community so you Mm kind of knew at least of everybody in the animation world uh, Jimmy coming out of UPA had pretty serious credentials Fred coming out of uh, New York and and Hanna-Barbera was n- not on quite the same artistic plane but definitely had the chops and they were uh, of the same era, they they were within a year of each other in age, and and uh, both liked a pint. Yeah, both, yeah. Both hung out in bars, and and I think they sort of found each other as kindred spirits against <laughs> the the tide of, you know, the oh, I don't quite know how to characterize it, but. It, at that time, there were no studios doing. UPA had gone out of business or gone, te- got taken over and turned into another uh, entity. Another thing was basically marketing the old stuff. Yeah. Uh, they weren't making any new things. Um, uh, um, Warner Brothers had gone out of business. MGM was on its last legs. H and B was getting underway, so it it was a thing. But H and B was H and B. You know, it had its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of criteria of what they would do and wouldn't do, and and artsy fartsy wasn't on their table. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and and that left Disney. So Disney, H and B, and then oh maybe a dozen small studios that did everything from educational films to commercials mm. to you know this and that, just whatever needed to be animated would get done by these little companies and they ranged from pretty uh, pretty heady if you want to call it that to pretty mundane you know making space films or or uh, academic 
educational films that were really uh, uh, straight. Um, and so uh, Jimmy and Fred sort of found each other and supported each other and said, hey, let's do this together. That, that's, yeah. that's my take on it. Very symbiotic relationship. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, they were. They, they, they um, really, it's, particularly at the beginning, they really got on well. And so how did you, uh, sorry, I'm just looking at the next one, which I'm dying to ask about, which is Dirty Duck. Dirty Duck, a 1974 X-rated adult animated feature film produced by B-movie maestro Roger Corman and directed by the Chuck you're hearing now. The plot on IMDb goes, Willard, a mild-mannered insurance adjuster, teams up with a foul-mouthed foul who takes Willard on a surreal quest to become less uptight and possibly get laid in the process. It's the 70s, baby. And I'm presuming that Jimmy might have been, was it was involved in the Roger Corman kind of introduction or anything like that? Or was it, how did that come about? Or was he just on the scene? Or? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, let's see, got to back it up a little bit. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I, I have to, to, to lead you into the story. We did sure. 200 motels. Uh, 200 Motels. Yeah, 200 was, Motels, was that's Zappa here, yeah. Thing. Frank mm. Zappa piece. Uh, Frank's um, manager was um, Herb Cohen. His brother was Martin Cohen. Martin Cohen and Barbara Boyle were lawyers here in town, uh, entertainment lawyers. Barbara left. Uh, she was our lawyer as well. Barbara left private practice and went in to business as Roger's uh, legal uh, head and, and left us to Mutt, Martin. So Martin mm -hmm. became our lawyer. Martin and Herbie were brothers. Frank wanted to make an animated movie. The, we got the introduction and, and, uh, and the same thing worked with Barbara. After uh, 200 Motels, I wanted to make a movie. Uh, Barbara was still with Roger, so it was easy access that we would actually see Roger at, and his wife at parties, and you know, mm -hmm. the, the, it was a, it was sort of a social thing as well as a business thing. So it was pretty easy to say, hey, I want to make a movie. I want to do it cheap. In fact, the name of the movie was cheap to begin with, but Roger didn't like the title. Yeah, um, I heard that. Yeah. yeah, he he, and it wasn't because he wasn't cheap or didn't understand that he was cheap. He knew he made cheap movies, yeah, yeah. but he just didn't think the title would attract an audience. Um, mm. I, I thought it was funny, but he didn't. So there yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. it ended up being called Dirty Duck, and which was another, uh, created another small problem in that uh, I got a call from Bobby London, who had a strip at the time called Dirty Duck, and oh. Bobby was a little bit uh, miffed that the title had been usurped. And uh, I said, "Sorry, man, it's not my doing. It's you got to talk to Roger." Yeah. <laughs> and the truth is, you can't, you know, uh, oh, copyright can yeah. can't copyright <laughs> a title. So a title's a title. And and Roger, when I said, "Hey, wait, we can't call it that. There's already a thing called Dirty Duck," and he said, "That's all right. People will show up looking for it." <laughs> sure, that's great. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so. That's I guess I, 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 I kind of, you know, again, this is me reading in on Wikipedia and kind of piecing things together. I thought that um, there might be some, because it was a, a documentary released um, 
year in 2014, I think, and it was called "It Came from the West" or something. Mm. Um, I'll I'll edit this later to make myself sound more intelligent. Sure. But, um, but it was a documentary about how Roger Corman came to Connemara and mm. uh, filmed movies there. And you know, uh, I guess I was just making too many connections in my head. But the idea of uh, the Irish studio and Jimmy actually having directed a, a live action feature for him as well, and. Uh, I just wondered if there was any correlation there or whether it was just a bunch of people who were creative hanging out at the time and sharing stories and kind of, uh, I suppose, roots that they could get funding. Yeah, yeah. it was more the latter. There, mm. it, uh, it really it got down to that, that, connect, that original connection of Barbara Boyle, who was a good friend of all of us. We, we all went to parties together and dinners and, you know, that kind of stuff. <clears throat> she and her husband, she had a couple of kids and, and uh, went on to do great things. And became a producer of, uh, of what, Terminator? Something like that. Mm. Uh, some, you know, big Hollywood movies. Um, very talented and bright woman. But we, we, it was just a, it was a scene. And so yeah. if you had something you wanted to do, it was a little bit like that that kid that I described in his early 20s trying to make your way into the animation world. You just sort of boldly went there. Mm. Um, the, uh, the, the, well, the way um, the point came to be was the short film The Magic Pear Tree was paired with Midnight Cowboy. Oh, um, really? Yeah, so when it was released, that was the short film that came on in advance of the feature film. Mm. Um, Harry, um, Harry sang the, the Everybody's Talking At Me. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so he was naturally, you know, went to see the film. He, uh, Martin Cohen also represented, uh, what's the guy's name that wrote the song? Um, mm. No, I can't remember right off the top of my head. But anyway, so, so it was all sort of interconnected. And Harry shows up to see, uh, I think it was at Grauman's Chinese or some big theater here in town where Midnight mm. Cowboy played. Um, and of course, I went there too to see the short projected, um, and and he was taken by the artistic merit of the of the short film because okay. there wasn't a lot of that stuff done. So he, being here in L.A., looked us up. We hung out at a, a little bar around the corner from the studio. Uh, Fred and Harry immediately hit it off as best buddy drinking mates. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, the the uh, the point followed on the yeah. heels of that. It's so funny to hear stories like this as well, because uh, I don't know, I was uh, in the researching of the Bluth episode, it was a, a little depressing, you know. <laughs> it was just, <laughs> you know. And I was like, these guys hung out in their garage at the weekend experimenting with techniques from the nine old men. And I was like, oh, God, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it's great to know yeah. that, uh, and maybe that's why they ended up in Ireland. Sure, you know. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, and can you talk a bit more about the experience of working on Dirty Duck then? And I guess it must have been, you know, I mean, 
influenced a bit by Fritz the Cat and things like that and X-rated cartoons from the time? Well, it wasn't wasn't influenced, um, it, but it was it was an opportunity that was presented because of mm. Fritz the Cat, because it because that film had been fairly successful. I could then go to Roger and say, "Hey, I want to make one of these too, but I'll do it cheap," and he'd say, "Okay," and that was it. Mm. You know, I'll give you a uh, hundred and twenty thousand dollars, and you have a year. Bring it All back right. when it's bring it back when it's done. And where were you animating this? Did you have like a premises and how many people would be there? I had a, a, a house with a little guest house and the guest house had an upstairs and a downstairs. The downstairs was the kitchen and sort of big living room with a fireplace. That was my studio. Upstairs was ink and paint in the bathroom and there were two women Jeez. that were the ink and paint department and I had uh, Bill Wolf, Fred's son, was my assistant and uh, I, I was doing about a minute of work a week, maybe a little bit better than that uh, mm-hmm. because it was a year and it was 72 minutes I think total so you know you just break it down by the numbers and and, uh, and, and I I had uh, watched Fred make the point, basically. I helped him. I did a couple of songs, but he basically did the work, and he did it much the same way. He he had a studio set up uh, in his place in Malibu. Uh, he had a little um, rental on Broad Beach. I think it was just a one-bedroom place, and he had installed an animation uh, tabletop in a closet, and he would <laughs> slide Jeez. back the closet door and there was his animation disc, and he'd work away. And so, you know, when you, and and uh, I think he was single at the time. I wasn't. I was married and had a couple of kids. But mm-hmm. when you've got that sort of convenience, I would roll into work uh, at like six in the morning, and um, break for lunch. Uh, work a little, couple hours more, and then by two or three, I was done for the day. Oh, I, I, I had a, that just uh, sounds amazing. <laughs> I had a uh, refrigerator in the kitchen with a beer tap, and so oh, I'd get kegs of beer and plug them into the into the fridge, and and uh, about three o'clock, I would pour myself a, a, a nice frost. It had a freezer, so I'd add frosty mugs and a, a nice frosty mug of oh, beer, and, uh, and away it go. It was great fun. It was it was the best probably working year of my life. I was totally on my own, and and the, uh, you know the design style of that film is really pretty casual. It's all you know, it's all just my hand, so I didn't have to you know follow model sheets or any of that kind of stuff. Oh, nothing, nothing, you know, it was all it's just all up to me. So I would do the the layouts and then do the animation. Um, Bill would do the assistant work, but he couldn't really keep up. So I would do some of that. And then the the ink ink and paint uh, of my team of two. Oh, and there was a a checker and a final checker also. Um, So the inkers couldn't keep up, so I would ink stuff when you know in those afternoons when I'd finished the animation that I needed to do for the day I'd then uh, pick up the the pace on the on the inking um, and again it was pretty casual so you know I'm not an inker I 
I know women that are professional inkers, and they're incredible in terms of their ability to follow the the drawing. But I didn't feel any of that kind of compunction because it was my drawing. So yeah, you know, yeah, I could yeah. I could either do it or not do it any way I wanted. And uh, but, the idea itself, did you kind of develop that, or was it kind of you were improvising a bit as you went along, or? It, it was about a 60-page script uh, that was actually written out. All, all the all the uh, dialogue and, and events were scripted. Um, but the actors, a couple of them for sure, were very good improv guys. Uh, one, the, the famous one, was Bob Ridgely, um, who did, uh, let's see, um, that guy, in the, the cop in the desert and the... The mm. fly guy on the on the uh, on the subway train, and right. you know any of those things that were sort of long soliloquies, oh, that the car salesman at the beginning, um, you know, and all that stuff was written out, but it was also embroidered by uh, the talent that read the script. Mm. And uh, how was the reaction, and how did Roger feel about it? Uh, he didn't like it. He, no. he didn't. He, he well. He didn't care for it. He it just it wasn't his cup of tea. Mm. Um, but he thought, well, you know, somebody will see it. So, yeah, somebody will like it. And and it wasn't uh, well received. Uh, it was definitely a little contentious for its time. It was mm. a real piece of the seventies, you know. And yeah. and then uh, there were a lot of. Uh, straight-laced folk that were a little up in arms over some of the stuff that was in it. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah but, but, it, but it developed its own little weird cult following, and uh, you know, they still have showings of it once in a while here in town, and they asked me to come and you know jabber away. So the next thing I have uh, that I wanted to talk to you about is I have Twice Upon a Time here. Twice Upon a Time is a 1983 cutout animated feature film. IMDb plot goes as follows. Two wannabe heroes and their friends must stop a madman from giving everyone nightmares. Ooh. And did you leave Murakami Wolf to go direct this? I had left Murakami Wolf okay. when this opportunity came along. It wasn't, too, it wasn't but a matter of weeks or a month before this came along, but I had left the studio. Was, was there a reason behind that, or is it just... It, it was just time, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, it, I had done a number of things, um, and things had sort of spiraled out of control. Uh, we all drank too much. Um, okay. And, and, uh, and, and it just, you know, it wasn't a good scene anymore. Jimmy had gone... It was Fred and I. Uh, we had pretty different philosophies um, mm. and uh, different habits, and you know, di di a lot of differences. And I just decided it was time for me to move on and do something else. Okay, great. And and you say so you left, and then like a few months later, you would have. Uh, yeah, well, it wasn't was, wasn't but a month, I think, uh, that okay. somebody c contacted me. Uh, to come up to San, no to meet here in LA with the producer and see if uh, I was interested in helping direct this 
this uh, feature film. And I said, sure, I'll meet with him. And, and uh, the guy's name was Bill Couturier, a uh, nice guy. Um, he and several other people together with the principal behind the, uh, the film was John Cordy. John was print, um, primarily a, a documentarian um, and made several really lovely films. Uh, but he also had a fascination with animation, and and he would make he made these little uh, handmade um, cutout films using uh, various bits and pieces of collage material to um, animate, you know, talking heads basically. Nothing very fancy, nothing nothing that had to move around a lot, um, and. Uh, he came up with this. Uh, he was also a designer, quite a good one. Um, and he came up with this method of backlit um, photography using pellon. Pellon is the stuff that the. It's not woven. It's uh, like felt that right. is put in, in collars of uh, clothing to to make ah. to stiffen them. And and so it it's a. Uh, because it's not woven, it's like felt and pressed, you can get it wet and it won't distort. It gets wet and then it dries out to the same size it was when it was pre-moistened. Pre um, and uh, so you could dye it in Dr. Martin dyes. I don't even know if they're even around anymore. But they were a, a, a really brilliant uh, set of dyes that were used for fabric and, and, uh, and also as drawing I, I used them as uh, as watercolors because they were really brilliant colors and then and then you underlit that stuff and it really was luminous it's just beautiful twice mm. upon a time while it may be a flawed movie it really was pretty um, yeah it was gorgeous i, yeah. I haven't watched the full thing now. i've only seen the trailer but uh it was quite something it, it was really but you know when they when I got together with Bill, I said, well, can I read the script? And he said, sure, here it is. I took it home, read it, and came back and said, well, you don't need a director. You need a writer. There's there's like 103 characters and events that you have to understand in order to get this film. That it's you know That's way too many by a factor of 10 at least. And, uh, and we got it down to maybe 12, but it should have been three, you know, yeah, basically yeah. an animated film is about a, you know, a, a couple of people and a, and a couple of events. Uh, mm -hmm. they're, they're not, uh, very complicated. This was, and it, it, it worked to its detriment in the marketplace. People just weren't expecting that sort of complicated a, a story and have having to track all these these things about mm. you know what is time and what are dreams and what are you know there are all these abstract concepts that you have to understand in order to get the movie and yeah. uh, and it just it never quite uh, never quite resonated with the with an audience but it was beautiful and it was mm. it was also a great uh, uh, um, experience uh, to pull off it, it was uh, we did it in uh, Mill Valley which is right outside New York on the Marin side of the bri uh, New oh, York, uh, San Francisco right outside San Francisco on the Marin side of the bridge um, and uh, the John had taken over a three-story Victorian house and turned it into a studio and uh, it was it was really like a f extended family 
of uh, artists and animators. Uh, the the uh, cameras of, for the show were all these. Um, well, let me see if I can describe the biggest one. The the uh, glass plates were six foot or seven foot by four foot, um, rimmed with aluminum uh, channel to give them strength. It was optical glass, so you could see through. I think we had four levels, and then these aluminum channels around the edge, and then pneumatic uh, arms at the at the long ends of the beds to lift them because you couldn't lift them by hand they were too heavy so these mm -hmm. if you stepped on a uh, a pedal <laughs> these pneumatic arms lifted up these table beds and then you as the animator fed yourself in between them uh, while they were open hoping no one would step Jeez. on the pedal again oh, to close God. it and squish you. And, and you manipulated all these little cutout uh, um, items using the, the cutting-edge technology of the time. Lion Lamb had come up with a single-frame video feed. So we fed that through a computer, and then we could rack the video feed. Uh, they were on reels at the time. Uh, back and forth to find the frame you were looking for. Mm -hmm. That was uh, on the monitor. You could then do a grease pencil drawing of that drawing, shift it ahead where you wanted to go, and then uh, shoot the next one. And so oh, wow. it, it, it was it was insane. It was just yeah, ins yeah. an insane production process that John saw as easy because he'd make... <laughs> He'd made these simple little animated films with, you know, a, a guy with a mustache, and the mustache was Wiggle, and that was lip sync. <laughs> <laughs> but, but these were, you know, multiple characters running around, doing things, talking, and, you know, it just, it was nuts. <laughs> but um, beautiful and, and very well done, and I think we got, oh, yeah. got it down to 12 things, and had we gotten it down to, I don't know, half a dozen it, it might have actually worked as a story. Right, yeah. Um, George Lucas's name was written all over that as well. How yeah, was yeah. he within the thing? Right. Well, George and uh, George had a studio up there in Mill Valley, and uh, the, the place that I met Bill originally here in L.A. Uh, was called the Egg Crate or Egg, Farton, egg Carton or something like that, yeah. uh, some, something to do with eggs. And it was, it was an incubating thing for... Um, film here in Los Angeles that would then be produced up in uh, San Francisco. Um, uh, George was very anti-Hollywood, very pro-San Francisco. He and Francis Coppola and the rest of those guys all mm. moved up to that part of the world in order to have a life that they felt was not as false as it is here in L.A. Um, and so George and, and John were... Um, Marin buddies, um, they did very different things, uh, George being hugely commercial and John being very yeah. quirky and, and sort of anti-commercial. But anyway, George uh, put his name on it in order to get um, funding and distribution. So mm. George, George had a, a deal going with uh, the Lad Company. Uh, and so Lad Company became the distributor. John got together most of the money independently and then the lad company put up the balance. 
Oh, great. Um, so yeah, I'm looking at the dates, and and basically there'd be there wouldn't be much um, overlap between the studio moving to Ireland and your time there. Would that be true to say, or were you? Yeah, no, no, I, I had not, I had nothing to do with uh, moving to Ireland or or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in, yeah. in a in a in any sort of major way. I came over to Dublin and it's been a very pleasant summer. Um, mm. w- working as a, oh, I don't know what you'd call it, um, quality control or something like that. Not a director, mm-hmm. really, because the shows were done and they'd come back with mistakes uh, galore. And uh, <laughs> it was my uh, responsibility to sort of to, to train the people to draw them properly to begin with and then... Yeah to fix the mistakes as the film came back. And um, it, it, it couldn't get itself done in Dublin at the time. Mm. Um, so it was farmed out to Hungary. And so I went over okay. there, went over there for a couple of weeks. Had a great time. <laughs> yeah, I just came back from holiday there literally two days ago. So. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I was in Budapest. It was gorgeous. Yeah. Budapest and Keshkemet. Keshkemet. Keshkemet is a little town compared to Budapest, uh, mm. maybe 100 kilometers away, uh, and was the home of, I forget what the name of the studio was, but it was the Hungarian um, studio during the communist era. Oh, wow. Um, and it, just within that year, it had the the velvet revolution had happened the mm. comfort the country had been you know the government had been overthrown and now they had these uh, government assets that were basically given to the people who ran you know this the guy that happened to be in charge of this place when it was under communism ended up mm. owning a studio and Jeez. and with you know with no there was no longer a government to feed film into the studio system. Mm. So then he had to go out and find something to do. Uh, and That's this was one of the things that they did uh, was pick up the, the uh, assistant work and, and animation and, and ink and paint for episodes of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And then I had the I just, same, yeah. same responsibility there. I went over there to kind of train and help and, but at the front end rather than the back. Mm. Uh, to, to it's see amazing how much of a, a hodgepodge it is. It's kind of just Frankenstein together in many instances. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. Um, there's a line I was on your bio on your website and it says, following a brief stint at Atari games, working on variety of computer games. What, mm-hmm. what was, can you elaborate on that? Uh, I went up to San Francisco uh, working on Twice Upon a Time, uh, mm. managed to get myself divorced or separated, ran off with some crazy woman, um, and, uh, and I needed something to do. I worked at uh, uh, Colossal. Colossal was a, uh, a San Francisco-based um, sort of independent uh, animation place, much like... Uh, more Conley Wolf Swenson, but in San Francisco, and and a little more cutting edge. They had more technology at their disposal, and were mm. more uh, more tech oriented than certainly than uh, than we were. Um, 
I worked there briefly and that sort of ran out and uh, so I looked around for something to do and somebody out of Colossal had got a job at Atari and said they were looking for somebody to head up the uh, the animation such as it was the digital it was probably 8-bit you know it was really simple stuff um, uh, to somebody to advise them as to how to make it look as best it could. And yes. I said, well, I can do that. So I commuted up to uh, or down to uh, Atari for, I don't know, a year maybe. It went from, uh, I think they had 5,000, 3,000, many thousands of employees down to 100 employees and I was the hundred and one-th. Oh, wow. <laughs> they, they were, they, the guy that was my immediate superior really liked the notion of having someone on the team who had some connection to Hollywood. And right, so yeah. he, he did his best to keep me employed there, but it, it didn't, quite, uh, didn't quite work. Didn't take. <laughs> yeah, it didn't, didn't take. That, which was fine with me. I... I really wasn't doing anything. <laughs> they, mm. didn't, they didn't know that, but, you know, I... <laughs> Safe I to admit now. To work, you know? Come into work and hang around. <laughs> and I wrote a couple of stories based off of the the games that they had at the time and, and uh, you know, and hung out with some of the, the, the tech guys, uh, got a little taste of what... Uh, uh, computer technology was all about. My mm. my oldest daughter um, went uh, was was very gifted in in uh, mathematics, and was part of the first class of computer scientists to come out of UCLA, and then went to Stanford Graduate School at the first graduate class mm. of in computer science. So she was she really was at the cutting edge of, you know, Apple when it when it uh, came to be. Um, she and her partner at the time did the software for the first laptop, um, uh, the uh, calendar uh, and, and events calendar that you got with the computer was their design. And so I knew, you know, I knew as my, I had a computer early on and I, you know, I knew what it was, but <clears throat> but I, and and Atari was sort of a part of that education, right? Uh, you mentioned writing there, so I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, an American tale, Fifle Goes West. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what was the experience like on that? That's kind of uh, a title for a certain generation. People are always bringing it up. I've heard it on a number of podcasts, in fact. Uh -huh. uh, well, I had. After Twice Upon a Time, uh, sort of looking around for something to do, and a, and a friend of mine, an illustrator named Peter Lloyd, I don't know if that rings a bell with you, but he was a, uh, a rock, uh, rock and roll um, illustrator at the height of the airbrush, airbrush uh, phase of, uh, of illustration. Right. And uh, he had a story that he wanted to tell. Uh, he was connected with uh, uh, George Harrison's company through through, mu through music. Yeah, was that handmade, handmade films or is it? Yeah, 
handmade okay. films, yeah. Um, through music, because Peter was this illustrator that had done, you know, album covers of note. Um, and so he took his little story into uh, Handmade and said, I want to make this story. And they said, okay, we'll, we'll pay for a script. Why don't you go write it? And he wasn't a writer. He and I were friends. I was a writer. So he said, and he was living in Taos at the time. So I said, uh, hey, Peter, I'll come out to Taos and let's write it together. And he said, okay. So that's what we did. Uh, that, when I was out there, I sort of kept the, the, the notion of my being a writer for animation sort of got spread around. And mm. um, somebody from, oh, no, no, I had worked on, <laughs> it, it all just gets back to relationships. I had worked on a, uh, a project that never came to fruition with a couple of writers that I knew as, an, as, a, uh, as a designer. I was the designer. These two guys were the writers for the Henson Company. And, and uh, the Hensons were uh, very, the, the daughters were, and, and there's a son as well, but the daughters were very well connected in the animation development world. I had met them when somebody wanted to remake uh, Looney Tunes, and it turned into Tiny Tunes or whatever it was. But they, they brought mm. myself, Richard Williams, and a guy named Mark Kausler, who's an American uh, animator who specializes in... Uh, old, oldish kind of stuff. He has a big, great uh, historical grasp of uh, animation and design. Anyway, they brought the three of us in to reinvent uh, Looney Tunes. And what we invented didn't stick. They went a whole other direction. But, um, but that was when I met uh, Lisa Henson. Uh, and Lisa went from, I think that was at Warner Brothers, Oh, yeah, I think it was Warner's. She went from there to um, Amblin, and yeah. at Amblin, uh, they were trying to make the second of those uh, American okay. Tales, yeah. and and so she sent me a, a uh, an email. I think it was the beginning of the computer revolution. I I had a little uh, one of those little uh, portable uh, Macintosh. Um, and uh, she sent me an email saying, would you like to submit some stuff? And I said, sure. Now, I don't know whether she was talking about, well, she wasn't talking about drawings because the, the design style was set. So I just, off the top of my head, you know, babbled out of, <laughs> on a, on a uh, computer, babbled out of the whole uh, bunch of nonsense about what I thought would be fun elements to have in a story. That's brilliant. And, uh, and she said, okay, come on, let's, let's have you write it. And I, I wrote, I don't know, like half dozen versions. Um, I, didn't, I didn't really get the structure right for their tastes. Mm. I, I, I used the structure that they had, had uh, used on the first one as a sort of guide, and they were looking for a different structure, but that was never communicated until 
uh, after the fact. And in fact, it was never communicated. I just got it. Uh, oh, that's why they got uh, uh, Flint Billy, I think, was the guy who um, ended up credited as the, oh, the screenwriter. Really? I was the, I got a story credit, and he got a screenwriting credit because well, he sort of reinvented. That's not what I read. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> no, well, I saw it online. I was just looking. Anytime I looked it up, uh, your name's uh, attached to it, so. Ah, well, there you go. Yeah. That's, That's great. So, yeah, so it, it, I mean, it worked out fine. I, I enjoyed the process. It was fun to do. Uh, I, I had it. I, I would have liked it better had it, you know, sort of stuck, so to speak. But it didn't. Sure. And that, that's all right. You know, that happens. Well, it seems to be a, um, a relative. Well, I don't know if it, you'd call it a cult classic, but it's fondly remembered by uh, the children yeah. who saw it. So yeah, know, yeah, um, in yeah. that way. You know that yeah. a cult movie kind of is as well. Um, right. So yeah, the next just few things I wanted to ask you about is kind of tidying up your IMDb page. <laughs> so <laughs> it's the uh, the Rugrats would be uh, the mm. one you you directed an episode, a Christmas episode, or mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. Um, yeah. sorry. Oh yeah, so. Uh, yeah, the woman, one of one of the producers uh, at, on Twice Upon a Time was a woman named Geraldine Clark. She was San Francisco-based, but things sort of ran out their string there. There wasn't much to do in terms of animation, so she came down to L.A. and ended up with at Klasky Chupo producing uh, Rugrats mm. because she she had a history of being able to do that sort of thing and. And they had they'd been doing the Simpsons, but the Simpsons were all done with a very different production method. Yeah. Yeah. You know? uh, so they they tried to do it in that using that same methodology, but they didn't have people with enough uh, experience uh, to really pull it off. So they they got to a place where they had. The first episode was storyboarded and directed, um, but they couldn't get it out the door. And Geraldine called me, and I was now back in town from the house experience. Mm. Um, that thing was finished, and I was back here in L.A. She called and said, would you like to come in and, and help a couple of days a week to to you know, get this thing on its feet. And I said, sure. So I went over there and uh, and really talented people, but nobody knew what they were doing. Right, <clears throat> and the, yeah. the, the really difficult part was the art department and the writing department had no uh, common communication tools. They didn't know how to talk to each other. The writers didn't like what the artists did, and the artists mm. didn't like what the writers said about what they did. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was a it was a real loggerhead. And the technology of the time was uh, the 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 animatic was shot on black and white film, processed in the in, in in the studio and then run through a movieola with a track to see whether the animatic worked. All that takes time. Each one of those steps, you know, take it took a couple days to get that process finished. And and it didn't leave enough time to do it again to make the fixes that people argued about 
<laughs> you know, the writers had one view of what would fix it, the artists had another, and so I was called in as a sort of adjudicator to say, well, yeah, in this instance, yeah, mediator, in this instance, this one will work, in this instance, you got to go with this one. Mm. Sorry, guys, but that's the way it is. And, uh, and, and then, because of my experience uh, with my daughter and at, at Atari, I said, you know, you got to computerize this stuff. This is crazy. All this technology is out here for us to use. We just got to figure out a way to put it to or put it to use for us. And so we bought a, a bunch of uh, um, what was the other game console? Not Atari, but well, I don't like, know. oh god, sorry, I can't, I can't remember at the moment. Well, I don't think it's Sega and Nintendo, but it wouldn't be those. It'd no, be, it wasn't. It wasn't those. But anyway, it doesn't Spectrum? matter. Spectrum, sorry, no. It doesn't matter. One of those yeah. game technologies had a computer and a monitor, and and all it needed. And I had worked at twice upon a time using yeah. you know the Lion Lamb technology through a computer to to uh, you know as a tool. So I thought, well, this is crazy. All we need is a language to get a digitizer to talk to a computer, and we can have all this stuff done you know on the fly. It, it can be done in hours instead of days. So yeah. we brought in these computers, um, we got some digital machines that could talk to them, and, uh, and the rest is history. We were sort of That's at the crazy. leading edge of, yeah. of revolutionizing the, the production process for uh, animation. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that type of stuff because it's one of those, you know, bridges it's a between given. it. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. it's just such a given. I mean, your phone can do it now. Yeah, exactly. Well, see, like, because the way I would have been reared and taught in animation is all digital stuff. So, yeah. like, yeah. The, the concept of doing it, like, we're watching those old Disney videos of, like, you know, here is a multi plane camera, you know, and you're like, <laughs> oh, that's how they did it, you know? Yeah. Um, but, like, there, there is those moments between two technologies which is like just even harder to comprehend you know? yeah 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 it, it was it was pretty crazy um but it, you know it was just that was what was going on at the time you could see it coming but it was mm. really hard to get it done um, because the technology itself didn't exist you couldn't go out and buy it off a shelf somebody yeah. had to figure it out and put it together and i'm, I'm not intimidating a, yeah. I'm, I'm not an engineer but i yeah, I knew from experience that you could somebody could do it. We just mm -hmm. had to find somebody who understood both sides of the terminal, and, and you know the thing would be done. So, and so that's, what, that's when you say he was digitizing the drawings, what does that mean exactly? Is in they were like scanned in? Like, did they have a yeah. monitor that like you could just see the drawings yeah. on it? Yep. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They were scanned in, and then and then you could expand or contract. The time they were on screen to—that's what the assistant director did. Yeah, so of course, yeah. overall time the show, and then mm -hmm. uh, and then the, the director would go back in and hand time it off the exposure sheets. Yeah, I didn't know what, what I thought that was. I was just trying to pick. I was literally yeah. picturing like something with green code on the screen or something. <laughs> no, it, it was a it was a a uh, scanning or. Um, single frame video mm. feed that would just take an image um, and and that was the scanner 
I, I don't think it went through a scanner where you lay it down on a green light and the thing over it. I think it yeah. was, I think it was some kind of uh, digital video feed. Okay, cool. Um, so the one other thing, I think this is kind of the last program, but at Mike Lou and Og, Mike Lou and Og. A children's animated series made by Klasky Supo for Cartoon Network, which ran for two seasons from 1999 to 2001. IMDb plot, a foreign exchange student interacts with the inhabitants of a deserted island. I'm going to, deserted island. Desert island. Why can they say that? Mm. Um, so there was two seasons of that. And mm-hmm. uh, you, st- were, you were heavily involved in that, were you? Like, yeah. 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 Yeah, it was. It was. It was also a lot of fun. It was yeah. a Russian, Russian-conceived project uh, through Klasky Chupo. Um, uh, several, a whole team. There were maybe eight of them. Russian guys came over here from Moscow, and they were great. A great uh, antidote from to me. Uh, compared to the young kids that uh, their age, you know, the kids that mm. were 10 years, 15 years, 20 years behind me had come up in a totally different way. Now animation uh, was a profession. You, you had a career, you made, you know, career choices. And <clears throat> it, um, when, when I started, it was sort of a calling because there was mm. no money. Nobody would pay you to do this stuff. So you had this, for some other reason, you had to be inclined to do it. Yeah. And these guys came out of the Soviet system where they were sent by the state to an art school that was um, practical. So they were Mm. trained as architects or engineers or, you know, something other than... Uh, a painter if you wanted to be a painter there were academic places where you could go and learn to do that but but it was a little bit like learning engineering too I know some people who've gone through that system and and it's very very militant in what they will and won't allow you to learn and do and so these guys these guys were trained as engineers or architects or whatever, and then found their way, much like Fred and Jimmy, found their way to each other and formed a studio. Um, and, and they were incredible, they are incredibly talented, you know, fun, goofy people who had come out of a system where you basically did everything yourself. And that yeah, was kind of been in the that trenches. Was where, I, where I came from. Whereas mm. today, and you know, I'm, I'm sure you, everybody has a specialty. They're all, you know, everybody's somebody's a something as opposed to something else. And working, particularly with computer-generated stuff, you're, you know, if you're a lighting guy, you're not a, uh, you know, <laughs> you're not a movement guy. If you're a, yeah, you, you get categorized. And so these guys were really open to the whole process. Uh, they they could see and do. Uh, come up with solutions to anything. Anyway, they were great guys. Um, at the end of uh, Klasky, uh, I, I sort of, I, it had run its string. I didn't really want to stay there. And, mm. and it, it was a very dysfunctional company. The, the right. two people at the head were incredibly talented, but they were 
conflict averse, and you know, they just, there were just some issues that really made it difficult to, you know, to function. Right. To ha- yeah. And and coincidentally, my best friend at the time contracted cancer, uh, mm-hmm. so I quit, and I spent a year not doing much of anything, um, but uh, spending time with uh, Mike, my, my buddy. Yeah. He died, and, and so on. Yeah, you know, it was 15 years ago, so it's uh, yeah. maybe 20, 20 now. But anyway, um, I uh, fair play for taking the time off, though. Yeah, yeah, I was. I feel very fortunate to have been able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what was I talking about? I had something in mind here. I had a point. <laughs> Sorry, you were uh, said Klasky Supo was winding down, and uh, you were kind of you basically run its course, and you're moving on to something else. Yeah, what what did I move on to? What what was your original question? Um, I guess I was just asking about Mike Lou and Og and your experience oh, oh, right, on that. Right, and, yeah. All right, okay, got it. So, I uh, the one of the Russian guys who didn't come here, uh, Misha Aldashin, incredibly talented, really funny, really sweet. You know, uh, a really good good man um, mm. had this idea. Uh, a little sketchy, but some funny drawings and and the notion of uh, a sort of fish out of water kid, uh, a Western kid in this uh, island nation, and it it, it came it came out of um, a series of short films and gags that he had done that were basically. Uh, you know, guys with bones in their noses and and uh, mm-hmm. ostriches and you know weird animals and and just really funny physical stuff, um, but which which was great, but it wasn't a series as we know it. And so um, Misha introduced me. Uh, there was another guy here named Misha Schindel who ran a little company called Kinofilm here in in L.A. He was. Uh, I think he's an American citizen, but he's back in Russia now. Uh, he introduced me to Misha Aldashin. Aldashin had this idea. I said, yeah, I th- there's something here. So I wrote up a, a concept piece, you know, a, a sort of Bible, hmm. took, it, took it to Annecy and pitched it to uh, Linda Siminski, who was at that time the head of animation for uh, Turner Broadcasting. Uh, oh, wow. And uh, she said, yeah, this looks like fun. She was from New York, and the lead was a girl. She was a girl. She was from yeah. New York. She uh, she got it and said, yeah, let's do that. So we did a couple of seasons of it. It never quite caught on. Um, I, I thought, and Linda finally acknowledged years later that it was probably on the wrong network because it had it had a little bit of softness to it, and yeah. things sort of had a uh, not a moral exactly, but a, a kind of lessonish uh, storylines, and um, and that was more Nickelodeon's fare than it was Cartoon Network. Cartoon Network was looking for more more boy oriented, yeah. uh, hardcore, you know. Somewhere between action adventure and obnoxious comedy, and this was a softer. Because like it kind of all bleeds together for me at a certain point. Like when I was growing up, and maybe you know shows. I I know my sister watched this, and it was on. 
it was on I, like when I was younger, like in my when I was in a at my childminders and stuff. Um, <laughs> but I had always lumped that in with Nickelodeon shows. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think you might be onto something there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so and, and had, um, it, had it been on a different yeah. network, uh, you know, it might have find, found an audience, but it didn't. It lasted a couple of years, and it was fun to do, and you know. On you go. Yeah, they were great characters as well. So yeah, yeah, they were. The voice cast yeah, looked great as well. I mean, it's not something I would have I paid attention to as a kid, but now I'm like, oh wow, you know. Yeah, yeah. I love the pirates. The pirates were absolutely my favorite <laughs> character in yeah. any animated show. I mean, the guy with two two peg legs and and two patches on his head. <laughs> <laughs> they were, you know, it was wonderful. Really, really funny. Yeah. And, the, and the guy that was the mayor, that was. This flaming queen collected teapot cozies, and it was it was really mm. hilarious. But you know, didn't and work. So I was going to ask you now, what are you working at nowadays, and uh, what's your kind of outlook on animation in general? I guess I haven't been involved in the animation world for quite some time, maybe twenty years. I've been a painter. Mm. And that's yeah. pretty much what I do. Um, I, I don't know if you visited the website, but uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, well, the, gorgeous that's, stuff. That's that's kind of what I do. Thanks. Um, and uh, I, I've got a I got a graphic novel that I've started oh, wow. a long time ago and set aside and come back to and blah blah. And maybe someday that that might turn into something. But that that's the only sort of piece of my animation history that I cling to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you have your projects that you have to battle, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Um, so this is a really uh, naff question, but what is your favorite project you've worked on overall, so, would you say? Or is it like choosing between children or something? Yeah, it's just, it's so different. Um you know, each one of them had their own specific set of uh, challenges and and fun. I think the really the over my overarching uh, joy uh, comes from the people, mm. not really the project so much. The project, you know, each one's different and they're all fun in their own way, and they were all weird and and wonderful. Um, but I really met and, and being able to associate with some pretty magical people over the years, both people on the on the art side of the thing and the and the literature side of the thing and the music and the and the acting side as well. This really, I, I think the animation world because at least historically it's not so much true anymore now there's money there to be made and so now you do get a certain amount of ego yeah, involved yeah. and and uh, you know people battling over this that or the other but in the <clears throat> for the in the main for the most part everything i've done has been uh worthless <laughs> which, which is which is great in the sense that it just takes the that uh, um, ego out of it um, mm -hmm. that that, uh, that they're either you know you're either at, it's life and life is a process mm. life's not a goal life's not an end and and so living a life of animation is is uh 
uh, the, the guy that I mentioned who died, mm. Mike Mike Haller, was a uh, production designer for all of Hal, Hal Ashby's movies back in the oh, right. 70s and 80s. So everything from you know being there to Harold and Maude and all. So really great movies and really you know wonderful people and cast and all that kind of stuff. But but it's a different kind of life. It it it's heady and. Uh, and and can be difficult and um there's there's heaps and mountains of money involved and and um you know people get bent over that kind of stuff whereas with animation those of us that work in the trenches we lead a good life don't get me Mm. wrong i've I've done well i i have a house i have a car i have a wife i have a kid i have a cat and a dog you know i've got all the stuff so i you know i uh I don't want uh, for anything, and it's it's allowed me to paint uh, now. Great. Um, so uh, so really, I, I don't think any individual project wins, but the the people that I met have been oh, wow. wonderful. Free music. There you have it. Great talk with Chuck Swenson, and he's had an insane career. You can find him at his website, www.charlesgswenson.com, where you can check out the paintings he mentioned earlier in the podcast. If you're in Los Angeles, uh, maybe find out where he's exhibiting and get in on that. Nice. Um, for those of you asking, where's Whistle While You Work? Well, I did ask him. Um, it felt like he ended on a very nice sentiment, so I didn't want to just tack it in there. But uh, so, but he basically doesn't listen to anything. Uh, so I think that's going to be a generational thing because I can't even watch TV without playing Tetris these days. Um, right. To wrap up the conversation, uh, I just want to recap some things which really stuck with me. Practical stuff first, Annecy, very important as it turns out. Um, <laughs> I've been too stubborn to lash out for a while now, but it might be worth investigating. Um, I think I just feel a bit insecure around the French and uh, chalked it up to me being a lo-fi animator, man. None of that go-bland flowing all over the place, moving for the sake of it, shite. I'm a bloody storyteller. But really, I'm just being a bellend and need to accept my work and get over myself to work with cool people. Not that I don't work with cool people currently, but, uh, you know, fucking, I mean, anyway, you can always have more friends. Um, not that I don't have... Anyway. Next most random connections make projects come together so don't turn your nose up at anything don't be mean to anyone unless they're complete fucking bollocks so finally 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 um i've written this down so you know it might sound a little bit scripted or rehearsed as the other stuff might have because i have also written that down try to add my own improvisational flair to it but uh you know whatever so finally finally stories about people from all disciplines coming together to make animation uh, amazing. Remember a few years ago at my wit's end with my grad film that I went to an NCAD exhibition where performance artists and sculptors did a collaborative exhibition. Everything went wrong and we were locked outside the exhibition space while a bunch of performance artists were inside systematically smashing and destroying everything we were supposed to be looking at. Eventually when we were let in, there was a sculptor walking around rubbing her temples going, guys, please stop. We have to, st- we have to start again. Uh, so they made everyone sit down then in a circle and talk about the immediate failure of the exhibition and how it made people feel. Uh, a lot of people I was with thought it was artsy bullshit, but I was like completely blown away. 
You know, after ages of being in college where the audience won't understand, keep it a three act structure, do this, that, the other, and all the rigid filmmaking rules um, that they're trying to enforce. You know, there was something that was beautifully falling apart at the seams and allowed to do so. Um, so it was a big inspiration for Hackfest because we need to think more like fine artists. Fuck the audience. To paraphrase Superhands, audiences like Coldplay and voting for the Nazis. Hearing Chuck talk about hanging with Roger Corman and illustrators, musicians, movie makers, etc., etc. Uh, I mean, I know it's the 70s, but fuck it. Can we please have some of that again? What I'm saying is embrace the artist, reject the cigar chomp and exec in your head. Uh, might make you too much money in the short term, but your soul will surely thank you. Repent. So that's it from us for the week. Um, email us at info at wearehackinc.com. Yes, it is a new email address. Very cool. Info at wearehackinc.com. Catch us on Twitter at wearehackinc. I think that's also our Instagram as well. I've been updating that a bit. And our big news, drumroll, um, tabbing the table, but I'm not going back and putting in a sound effect. So drumroll, imagine it in your head. Our big news of the week. We have a website and a showreel. That's right. Hack Inc. are now officially an animation company type thing for legal reasons. Tell your auntie, tell your friends, tell your TD. We will make you animation. Anyone looking to get in touch via email? That is once again, info at wearehackinc.com. Share, retweet, do all that shit. I'll probably announce the showreel later on in the week officially so that doesn't just coincide with the podcasts, blah, blah, blah. So uh, this is like a little, little treat, a little secret for all ye out there at the moment. So I want to thank Niall Ainsworth. Thanks a million, Niall Ainsworth, for the great website. And thanks to Adam Kavna for our incredible ident, which you can see at the end and hopefully see a lot more of. And, and thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in. Uh, I'll see you next time now. Uh, bye-bye. <laughs>